welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, Coenos Hermes, and a deep bow of gratitude and reverence to Sophia. What is it to think like a mountain? How is it that so many of our decisions go so wrong, sometimes producing negative side effects that we can see, sometimes producing negative side effects we can't see? You might remember hearing about a hole in the ozone layer that appeared last century, long time ago, for some of you, for some of you before you were born, but it happened last century. Seems a weird thing to say, last century. No one intended to create a hole in the ozone. But we did it. We didn't intend to put mercury in our brains and lead in our bones. A recent study tested 62 samples of human placenta and found microplastics in every single one of them. And here we can sense a more holistic critique of the thing we call capitalism. You know, capitalism doesn't really exist. We have some kind of weird system. We call it capitalism because we're scared to admit that it isn't really capitalism, but capitalism doesn't work, so we can't really have full-blown capitalism. It has some internal structural problems, but as much as we might critique capitalism, I don't think the petroleum and plastics industry CEOs wake up in the morning and set the intention to put plastic into human placentas and developing embryos. So in that sense, the issue is not about capitalism versus socialism as we typically construe it. Oh, if it's not capitalism, it's going to be Stalin. And we're just thinking purely in economic terms. That's way too narrow. We have to get reality involved here. Capitalism involves a style of thinking and a style of consciousness out of attunement with reality itself. And we're not going to survive if we keep denying reality. And it's so funny because the shtick about capitalism is that it's very realist. You know, if you're a realist, if you're a cold, hard realist, this is the way you got to do it. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't, it doesn't accord with reality. That means it's not going to work. We need a shift in thinking and in consciousness. And you know, I often quote Gregory Bateson, if you've listened before, his lovely line, the major problems of the world are a result of the difference between the way human beings think and the way nature actually works, the way nature actually functions. The Buddha would agree with that, 100%. Socrates would agree. Jesus and the peacemaker would agree. We could find indigenous Elders, I'm sure, who would agree. I, I won't speak for them, but I think they would agree, at least in the case of the dominant culture, the way the dominant culture tends to practice thinking. But how can we think the way nature works? That's our focus. This is such an exciting thing to think about. How can we actually think better? How could we think the way nature works? It will improve our lives. The basic ideas of what we could call ecological thinking which is also just spiritual philosophical thinking, 
the basic ideas can begin to shift our perception and action in the world, helping us live better, love better, and further the conditions of life. So this is really juicy and nourishing stuff. Today we're going to go a little deeper. And let's start with a classic example. We like to think about examples. They seem very concrete, you know. This is still just a story. It's an abstraction. But it's a story that really happened, and it's a classic example. The Ecology of the Kaibab Plateau in Arizona. If you never heard of it, here is your introduction to a famous example of ecology and ecological thinking. The Kaibab Plateau became famous for its deer population, in part. And Theodore Roosevelt, the U.S. president at the time, so this is very early, very, very early years of the last century. Theodore Roosevelt and others, he was a hunter, you know, but uh, he wanted to protect this deer population as a kind of national treasure. Now, the problem was ranchers had already overgrazed the land. This is over 100, this is like 120 years ago, right? You see how, how great we are at ecological thinking. So the ranchers had overgrazed the land and an ecology that could have supported 30,000 deer only had 4,000 deer integrated into it. And the human beings decided to try to help the population to thrive and grow. So humans were going to save the day. And the government tried two things. If you want to increase the deer population, what do you do? Well, you restrict the grazing by domesticated animals. So that's the first thing, get rid of some of their other herbivore competitors. And then you reduce the predators. That was their idea. Let's get, get rid of the predators, get rid of the other competition, and the deer will thrive. Now, the problem here, you already maybe can sense, humans in conquest cultures have historically done a pretty bad job at understanding the role and importance of predators. We have a very nervous position. We, we want to be the apex predator. We really do. In a certain way, we are, of course. In another way, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you're going to lose against a lion. But we're a predatory species in a lot of ways. We don't have to live the way we do. But you, this is what happens when you get into the kind of thinking that we get ourselves into. And then you're nervous and you have to fight with the other predators. And so this is not a universal human cultural trait. This is a dominant culture trait. And some other cultures that have been infected with conquest consciousness have also had this relationship that they don't know how to live well with predators. Because indigenous people here on Turtle Island, they did just fine. They were living here with the wolves, and they were living here with the lions, the mountain lions, and the bears, and they were just fine. Everybody was fine. Everybody had enough. And then conquest consciousness comes, and nobody's got enough. Well, naturally, when you kill, as hu the humans did, the humans killed off lions and wolves and other predators, and they re removed some of the competitors, the domesticated grazers. Well, the deer population soared. And where did it go? Well, it, it soared right past the carrying capacity for the ecology. The feedback loops, we're going to get into the details about what that means, the feedback loops that kept predators, prey, and plants in balance got thrown out of whack, and this led to a collapse of both the plants and the deer. And so then we find in this example a basic idea at work, something called states and flows, and we'll detail them a little bit more, but the state or level of the deer population 
is one aspect of an ecology when people are thinking about analyzing ecologies. And then you have the input, which is the flow from human beings. And these are very often policy decisions in the governmental and corporate context. So we, we have to pay attention to these things. And we're going we're gonna to look at this in more detail. We're just laying it out. So the flow here had to do with decisions made by human beings that was an input into these ecologies. And what we find in an ecology like this is we find e interwoven ecological processes of predators, deer, plants, and humans. Now the deer population depends on a feedback loop between the deer and the plants. From a certain perspective, the input of that loop is deer and the output is grass. But we can also say the input is grass and the output is deer. You see, because deer and grass make each other. And together they collaborate to create an ecology. Each of the deer is an ecology, and then a group of deer is also an ecology. Each blade of grass is an ecology, and then the grasses together, the plants, although not just grass, but all the plants the deer, is, the deer eat, those are ecologies. And then the whole thing is an ecology. So you have nested ecologies. Ecologies are interwoven with each other. And the processes at work include metabolism, which means transformation. That's what metabolism means. The deer eat the grass and metabolize it into more deer. Remember that feedback loop? We talked about that in our last discussion of ecological thinking. That the first thing the deer do when they eat is make more deer. They make their own bodies. They make the mechanisms that allow them to eat more grass and to make more deer. So deer make more deer when they metabolize plants. The plants absorb sunlight and metabolize it into more plants. And of course, remember that the deer naturally would, they would eat the plants, they would excrete, and that would fertilize the soil, that would nourish the soil, so that they would be helping to create more plants. That's very important. We talked about that part of the feedback loop last time too. Grazing, so that means that deer make more deer. You and I, when we eat, we don't do that necessarily. We, in fact, we, that's our orientation, that the dominant culture gets us to extract from ecologies and not give back to make more of them. We just degrade them. And here, when humans intervened, this ecology got out of whack. The deer should have been helping make more plants, but they started to exceed the ability of the plants to grow. They were, in other words, exceeding their ability to properly nourish and care for and perpetuate and further the conditions of their own life. What a twist. Oh, that's very important. This, this sort of thing can seem very obvious, but we don't do it. So this is our insanity. We're trying to look directly at our own craziness. Grazing that exceeds the ability of the plants to properly grow, mature, and propagate will lead to less food. And so what you get is a positive or reinforcing feedback loop. We, can, we call that a runaway. That's going to be important in an, another contemplation about our insanity, but the idea of a runaway. So a runaway feedback loop emerges because we remove the essential balancing presence of natural predators. When that happens, we create an exponential shift in the state of the deer population. Predators provide a negative or what we would call a self-correcting feedback loop. Those are required for a healthy ecology. 
And we'll look at this more deeply, but one of the issues with the capitalist system is it cannot abide self-correcting feedback loops. It is constantly trying to get out of them, to destroy them, to eliminate them in terms of policy. That's another way in which capitalism is completely unecological. It's a nonsense system. You have to have negative or self-correcting feedback loops. And that's why, where we got the 2007-2008 crashes, where you get crashes, bubbles, you get lots of problems because capitalism will not abide feedback. And even though we don't really have capitalist system, that's one of the ways that uh, the capitalists fight, though, is they fight any regulation. So deer in this particular ecology would be a positive or reinforcing feedback loop. And the reason that can even happen is because the ecology could potentially support 30,000, but we started with only 4,000. So you could get a feedback loop going. There was enough material, in other words. As people used to sometimes joke, enough rope that you could bind yourself up with, you know. Or, or more gratuitously put, you know, you could do more damage than that if you have enough rope. So we can contrast these loops by saying that one loop becomes a runaway, the other one functions as self-correction for the ecology as a whole. When the balance vanishes, then the positive feedback loop takes over. So when the wolves vanish, that's the self-correcting loop, the positive loop, the deer, begins to take over and we find exponential growth in deer coupled with exponential decline in grass. Now it starts out slow, but then it becomes very sudden because it's an exponential function. It's sort of this runaway can take you by surprise because it, it, it suddenly gets very huge in relative terms. Now we could say deer population, let's say a deer population grows at 20%. So we start off with 4,000 deer. 20% means the following year we've only got 800 more deer. That's not a big leap. But within about uh, 10 years after that, you're increasing 20% of a population of 35,000. So that's almost a tenfold increase. So we started out in our first year by removing the feedback loop of the predators, the self-correction for the whole ecology. We remove that, we get an 800 deer increase. But around 10 years later, now we're increasing by almost 10 times that in a single year. That's how feedback works. And it's also one of the reasons why a large human population is inherently problematic for this planet, when you have this many humans. Especially this many humans all trying to live in the conquest style. We want some kind of balance, of course. We need to have some kind of shared comfort and ease in the world, but we cannot all live the way the uh, Elon Musk's and even like your average urbanite, your average New Yorker or San Franciscan. Average is tricky, but you, you get the idea. We have a little bit of confusion, you could say, in the dominant culture about how we how to live. Now, the deer population in the Kaibab Plateau eventually exceeded 60,000, and it obviously doesn't take long because you go from 35,000, then you jump up, uh, almost 8,000, you jump up about 7,000, right, at 20%. And you're going to go up again and up again at 20% leaps. That's huge. That's really, really huge. 
And the population might have even blown past 60,000. Remember, the carrying capacity was only 30,000. Now, there's some dispute about how big it got, but what we do know is that it led to what was described as a morally shocking famine in the deer population, with the deer suffering greatly. It was just sort of horrific to see tens of thousands of deer starving. We need to recall, what was the intention? No one intended to kill the deer. No one intended to create a moral shock, a morally shocking famine, something horrific to see. No one intended that. They actually intended to help the deer thrive. In a grand stroke of ecological and philosophical irony, and Socrates would appreciate this, being the philosophical ironist that he was, the intended outcome was the exact opposite of the actual outcome. The exact opposite. Of course, that's the definition of irony. When the intended outcome is the exact opposite of what you get. So tremendous philosophical, spiritual, ecological irony. And the point of philosophical and ecological thinking has to do with reducing these sorts of unintended and unwanted outcomes in our lives and in our world. Obviously, a lot of the stuff in our lives arises a little more subtly than that, but we have plenty of irony. We, we marry the person that we intend to stay with and then it doesn't work, and maybe it's that we just had the exact intention to find the perfect person, or we had the exact intention to avoid the mistakes that we made in the past and somehow we still got stuck. That's not just personal relationships. I'm mentioning that because it's relatable for so many people. But it's all sorts of things. And again, because some of it's subtle, sometimes you, we, we create impacts that we cannot see because they happen far away from us. And we read about it in the news, but we don't make the connection between the headline, which has to do with increasing mercury levels, and everything we're doing in our daily life. We don't see that that's producing the problem. It's contributing to the problem. So maybe when we use bleach, we're not thinking about it. Or when we buy something in plastic, we're not thinking about little babies who are going to be wrapped in a placenta that has microplastics and that it's going to be in their bodies as they're developing. We're not thinking that and we don't intend it when we pick up that thing in the plastic to-go container. Now we could say that if human beings could have lived better with themselves, that's very important. If we could just live better with ourselves, that is yourself, and then also with each other. We're uncomfortable with ourselves. We don't know ourselves. Then that makes it hard to live well with others. We also don't understand them because we don't understand ourselves. Then we don't understand the larger community of life, our kin, our relations. The predators are our kin, whether you are a hardcore scientific materialist or if you're just a religious person and you know the divine made the whole thing and made us to fit in it. So what else could they be? So if humans could have lived better with themselves, with each other, with the predators, with the ecologies as a whole, they very well could have rejuvenated the land and the deer population in a wise and graceful manner, and instead they collapsed the ecology. The same holds true on a planetary scale today. If we can just learn to live a little bit better with ourselves, with each other, with our friends and kin, 
including the dangerous ones, the ones we don't like, the pesky ones, and if we could live better with ecologies that we depend on, we can rejuvenate the whole thing. That's the exciting thing about ecological thinking. Spiritual and ecological thinking offers us this promise. Hey, we can heal it. We can heal ourselves, each other, the whole world, in mutuality. We're not talking great white hope thinking here. We're just talking about real, serious wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, we can try to look at this example at least a little bit in a way that that draws from the terminology of ecological science or systems thinking. And we've used some of the terms already. We're going to question the value of this approach in various ways, but it still seems important and potentially helpful in some ways to think about these terms like feedback loops and inputs. So try to stay with it. We're going to come back to a different perspective. And in general, we need to think about all these things, and we need to think even about some of these technical terms. You know why? Because you and I are the objects of these sorts of interventions, like the one with the Kaibab Plateau. Sometimes people have the motivation to help us. Like Roosevelt thought he was really, he wanted to help the deer. Often there's a rationalization that the intervention is good for us. You know, if, if people really sat and thought about the idea they have for us, they wouldn't do it. You know, like the iPhone or some of the apps, right? Facebook. It's easy to rationalize Facebook is about connection, but it's built on addiction. And we need to see, this has just become so important for us to see that people have started to use systems thinking. We're calling it ecological thinking in part to differentiate it. What, what we have in mind, nevertheless, some aspects of it are getting used. People have started to try to use it and they are using it in ways that affect you and I every day. The impacts can spread far and wide in space and time. Systems thinking is hip. And people want to wave their systems thinking flag so they can look very scientific and cutting edge and also because they think it's going to work. I had Neil Thies on here on the podcast. You might have caught that interview. We were talking about it and I was really kind of terrified to learn. I think I kept my cool pretty well, but I was freaked out to hear that corporations were reaching out to him to find out how they could use his ideas about systems thinking. Now, he didn't invent them. It's just that he has a very user-friendly way of talking about it. And so they thought this makes more sense than talking to the people at the Santa Fe Institute who just speak math. And I actually really hope he doesn't help any major corporations unless he finds a way to do it that would be deeply so transformative that the corporations would change what they're going to do. But they're going to use it to do what they always do. So it's very scary. As people continue to uncover the cogency of ecological thinking, Let's say, I mean, that's our word for it because we're trying to be more holistic. I hope that makes sense. Usually you're going to hear people talk about systems thinking, complexity theory. And we're talking about spiritual philosophical thinking or Sophianic thinking, Sophia, the, the goddess of wisdom. So we want to try to treat it with a sense of sacredness and reverence and real caution and care. But the ideas that we are talking about have a cogency because they reflect reality. 
And as people continue to uncover that cogency, then what some of the elements we're talking about, the core things, it, they will get colonized and co-opted by all manner of spiritual materialism. That's dangerous. People applying systems thinking, even parts of it, even in limited, fragmented ways, they can have planetary impacts that reverberate for decades or even longer. So we have to inquire and think carefully. And in fact, as we've tried to make clear, this is reality. Reality is this ecological systems kind of thing. You know, everything is interwoven the way we've described it. So it doesn't matter if people apply systems thinking, they will still, the things we do, have massive effects. So when we created the hole in the ozone, it's not because we used systems thinking. The hole happened because the earth is a system. And some part of the earth can have a massive impact on the whole. But then, what happens if you take that little part, the human, and say, here, human, here's this new powerful way of having the same kinds of impacts. Well, what will happen? The impacts will be potentially larger, you see. So this only makes us more dangerous right now. We need to find a way to help it make us more wise, more loving, more beautiful. Corporations in particular engage in a kind of mechanistic systems thinking. And that's what makes me nervous about my friend Neil. He's a very nice guy, but I, I really do hope that he's careful. And with that we all are. Anybody helping to teach systems thinking, corporations will pick it up in a mechanistic way to more effectively manipulate us and their own internal processes, you know. So they'll use it to say, oh, we're going to do team building and we're going to do, we're going to make us a healthy ecology. That's, they don't really care about that, though. The drive is profit. And on top of that, corporations rationalize all their interventions, doing their very best to see them as good. Remember, as I often love to remind people, that the head of Goldman Sachs, when we had the big explosion, because of why, a runaway, lack of negative feedback loops. We had the big crash and the head of Goldman Sachs said, we're doing God's work. It's a bank. I mean, I just don't understand how Christians everywhere didn't freak out and demand the overthrow of Goldman Sachs. I don't mean anybody had to be burned at the stake. I just mean, that's it. Let's make it a national credit union. I would be stunned as a religious person if somebody said, a bank is doing God's work. What in the world planet did I come to? Which God? So we have to really think carefully. And that's not the Every single, all of these things are being rationalized. Elon Musk, I think, he seems to think he's saving the planet or saving the species or something. But whatever a person on the marketplace is putting out there, and unless they're, they have like a kind of psychopathic aspect to themselves, they're going to rationalize they're going to fancy that their product somehow benefits us, that we should have it. But they will almost never look at the larger ecological impact the way that we are. We can safely bet, practically bet our life on it, that they don't engage in ecological thinking as we have tried to consider it here together and as we will continue to look into it. And the same holds for governmental agencies. 
So we want to think about what systems thinking is as we may commonly encounter it and also consider limitations of those common approaches and how we can arrive at a more holistic, sacred kind of ecological thinking, which means practices rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. Okay, let's begin by reviewing a few things which we tried to relate to some sense of wisdom, love, and beauty. We, we had some technical words that we dealt with and some definitions. We defined an ecology as a relative wholeness constituted by an interwovenness of relative parts or elements, each of which can affect the behavior or activity of the wholeness as well as the behavior or activity of other relative elements. Now, each of these relative elements in an ecology, it manifests a certain degree of relative autonomy. However, each relative element can only affect others or the whole in dependence upon other elements, typically in recursive loops. We noted that ecologies think, they learn, they communicate, And all of that depends on a flow of meaning, not just a flow of physical forces. And we noted how radical all of that is. Among other things, the fact that ecologies operate on the basis of a flow of meaning. Wow! That gives us the opportunity to heal human culture and thus heal nature too. Heal from the misguided metaphor of power and all its negative consequences. Power, this word that we use so often, and I'm thinking of you, Foucault, ghost of Foucault, or Foucault as you have whatever you've been metabolized into, whatever form you're in now. Maybe Foucault is now a Tibetan monk. But at any rate, power doesn't matter to ecologies the way meaning does. And so if we think we see power dynamics at work in our culture, the way to heal them is to dispel the enchantment cast by the very notion of power itself. To see it not as something solid, but as a metaphor we can abandon. How do we do that? Well, in part by inquiring how we can open up the flow of meaning again. Meaning offers us a peaceful path out of our insanity. And it can't just be any old thing goes. It's not, it's not everything goes. Many things go. It's not any meaning we want. We can't be crazy. We, there has to be wisdom, love, and beauty in it somehow. It needs constraint. So it, it's not meaning any which way. The meaning has to accord with reality. We reflected on all of this as part of our consideration of Gregory Bateson's six criteria. Remember, we talked about six criteria. What what are the six criteria for? Well, they are six criteria for mind, ecologies, learning, thinking, evolution, and life in general. The same six criteria for all of those which reveals something so wonderful about this world we live in and about ourselves. What a beautiful thing. Let's say it again that holistic ecological thinking invites us out of the delusions of force, power, physical energy, physical impacts, linear cause and effect. And it invites us 
into the more vitalizing notions of patterning, context, meaning, recursiveness. Ecological thinking invites us out of a mechanical universe made of matter that doesn't matter and into a living, loving, relational cosmos in which everything we do matters and we exist in a vibrant web of meaningfulness. Not meaninglessness, meaningfulness. We could rejuvenate ourselves, our cultures, and our world on the basis of this kind of shift. If we could accomplish this shift as part of better ways of knowing, being, living, and loving in a cosmos that arises as total interwovenness. I try to keep some of these things in mind, even just the key terms, patterning, context, meaning, interwovenness, dynamism, wholeness, recursiveness. The wholeness and interwovenness that characterize the basic nature of an ecology is alive and a love, which means it has a dynamism, and that dynamism means ecologies exhibit impermanence, a constant flow and flux. Now, these are the core aspects of reality, wholeness, interwovenness, dynamism. They give rise to four major characteristics. And we find these rather difficult at times to fully accept and work with. The four characteristics of ecologies are precariousness, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. They arise directly as aspects of the nature of reality. Now, our example here, and just now in our definition, we mentioned this dynamism. That means ecologies flow and change. And we saw that in the Kaibab Plateau. How do the changes happen? Well, when we study an ecology, in part that means studying the ways feedback loop relationships constitute changes in or the evolution of that ecology. And we usually experience that through time. And we introduced this a little bit when we looked at Bateson's six, six criteria. We noted that ecologies must have recursive loops and not merely linear chains of causality. These loops operate within ecologies, but they also transcend the conventional boundaries of ecologies. And we saw that in our example. Deer eat plants, and that makes more deer. So that each deer is an ecology. But now the recursive loop that makes a deer a deer, it transcends the hide of the deer. It's not contained merely within what we point to and say, that's the deer. We point the wrong, we can't do it. We can't actually point to the deer because the deer is relational. But when we point to the deer, that's definitely wrong in a very deep and important way. At minimum, we'd have to point to the deer and the plants and, and the water, oh wait, and then the soil, oh wait, and then, then the sun. You see, we just can't point very easily at the deer. In a balanced ecology, the deer give back to the plants. Their excretions help to grow more plants. So each deer, as an ecology, transcends their own hide. And then we had the human inputs that transcended the boundaries of the whole plateau. All the way in Washington, D.C., somebody made a decision, an input, triggered a whole recursive loop that pulled in a plateau in Arizona. Now, sometimes people will speak about ecologies as having two basic functional elements, the states and the flows, and we talked about that. The state of an ecology is kind of like a status or indicator 
or set of indicators, and the decisions affecting the ecology, usually in response to the states, those function like flows into and through the ecologies that constitute their state. No ecology exists without states and flows. It's just absolutely part of what they are. they got to be in some state of being, and there must be something flowing into them and through them. The flows are effectively decision processes or policies when you think of it in human terms. And those tend to operate in accord with some sort of aim or value, conscious human purpose, our big problem. Our lives get shaped by these aspects of ecologies all the time. I'm going to say it again because it's so important. Corporations and governments track the state of the culture. They track our state. They track our behavior. They make policy decisions that function as flows of meaning into our personal, professional, and social lives. They're tracking us all the time. So we are talking about how our life is. This is not abstract. It is urgently concrete. This is happening all the time. As we said, our romantic lives function like this. Our families and friendships function like this. Our minds function like this. Those are all ecologies. You and your romantic partner, that's an ecology. You yourself, you're an ecology. You transcend the boundaries of your skin. You and your partner together transcend the boundaries of each other's skin and also your romantic relationship transcends the boundaries of the two of you. Typical analyses of flows will often reduce them to material terms. So this can happen sometimes when you look. You're going to see people thinking about this in purely material terms because we want to try to measure. We want objects. We want objective measures. And obviously we have to find a way to track things. It's not like the notion of objectivity is completely idiotic. It's just that it's far more subtle than we realize. So in simple terms, no, you can't be objective, not in a simple-minded way. States and flows, they dance by means of news of a difference. That's how Bateson liked to put it. In other words, by meaning. The dan- There's a dance of meaning. News of a difference. The deer start behaving differently as soon as they have news that the wolves are not around. This news of a difference in the states and flows is referred to as information. Remember that information literally means shaping in form. In form. Literal. A lot of times I'll hear people being critical of information. Oh, this is too much information. We need to be formed because we are ecologies. We depend on flows of meaning. Flows of meaning shape ecologies and ecologies shape flows of meaning. Wow, what a beautiful thing to register. Flows of meaning shape ecologies and ecologies shape flows of meaning. When we look at a forest or a plateau, I don't think we first appreciate it as a flow of meaning. We might have a lot of reverence for it. We might see it as beautiful. But we may not just touch such a simple yet profoundly important thing. Oh, but this is a flow of meaning, and it has its own meaning. 
The forest has a meaning. We could shift so much by just beginning to honor, appreciate, and deeply perceive this way. We might, maybe, take more ethical, wise, compassionate, and aesthetic approaches to an ecology because we would realize that we don't understand all the meaning flowing in it. You look at a forest, you couldn't possibly be so egotistical as to say that you know all the meaning flowing through that forest. So it's a repository of meaning. And we know how precious meaning is, so why would we not take care of it? It's like the never-ending story. Remember that? The nothing comes to eat all the meaning away. It's been a long time since I read that book. It's really good. It's a really lovely little book. And uh, it wasn't so bad. I think they did the movie version, I don't think, finished the whole book. But anyway, it just seems like we don't, it's not wise to force human meanings onto a pre existing flow of meaning, which then in turn might cause problems for us. Because everything we do to the world, we're doing to ourselves, because we are interwoven with it. We are it. Sometimes we can get in a sort of separated language. We can think of, we can talk about the dance of meaning as mediated by news of a difference, and that makes everything seem separated. Mediation. That's the great European thing, mediation. We, we don't understand intimacy. Ecologies arise as interwovenness through and through. So that's why we are studying ourselves when we study an ecology. Because even just the act of observing an ecology now made you interwoven with it. So it's not just that, oh, if I study a forest, that's studying myself because I too am an ecology. Yes, that's true enough. But as soon as you start looking at the forest, you're now woven into it. What you call science, that's woven into it now. It's recursive in this way. The observer and the observed get totally interwoven. So we can speak in relative terms about information, sure, but a fundamental holism supersedes all our conceptual tendencies. Then those tendencies often head in the direction of fragmentation. The holism embraces a non-duality between unity and diversity, and thus, ultimately, holism transcends all relative separation, and an inconceivable intimacy brings things into being and shapes their evolution. So when we think about an element or a part, anytime we find ourselves talking about parts, if if this is an ecology, then it's just a dance. And everything is interwoven. It is the dance. You're looking at the dance just from one little perspective. But it's the dance we see. Everything's interwoven. What we think of as an input, that gets danced into an output. An output, that gets danced into news of a difference. The news of a difference gets danced into a feedback loop that carries what used to be the output back into the input. Now, if your head is spinning, that's because we just went through a revolving door. This is recursiveness. Deer become plants, plants become deer. Everything flows together like this. You too. That's why plastic becomes placenta. Now we tend to try to think of this as a straight line thing, you know, and as pieces. That's just a habit. 
We may want to have interwovenness be part of our thinking. We long for ecological thinking because that's what the soul's thinking is. But we have been indoctrinated to think of cause and effect linearly and to think of things as parts, as pieces. This is an input, we say. This is the process. This is the output. This is information. This is the feedback loop. But the whole thing is interwovenness. The interwovenness transforms an apparent cause into an effect, an apparent effect into a cause. The dance dances itself, and the dance arises out of its own states. Now, here comes back to this mysterious thing. Since all the relative parts dance into one another, they aren't really parts. They don't have their own existence independent of the larger ecology or independent of one another. We are relational beings. Sentient beings. We are sentient beings. And no sentient decisions occur outside of feedback loops. No sentient decisions occur outside of relationality. And this applies to us in our everyday life. It's you too. It's you and me both. All your decisions arise within various feedback loops, many of which you have no conscious awareness of, even though they impact you. All decisions, human and non-human decisions too, all decisions arise as aspects of interwovenness. And when it comes to human participation in these dances, here's a tricky and important thing. This is so vital. Now, you're going to say that it's obvious in a way, but think how deep this is, what we're going to say right now. Everything we're looking at is a dance, right? Everything's dancing into everything else. It's so interwoven. When human beings participate in these dances, the dances will evolve according to what human beings attend to, what they can become aware of, and how they become aware of it. Now, this is such a deep and profound issue. We'll need to inquire into it over the course of many contemplations. Indeed, many of our previous episodes have focused on this in one way or another, but there's a way to say the whole mess that we're in, it's a crisis of attention. And you can see why our attention is being colonized. Look at how social media gets us to attend. What do we attend to? How do we attend? It's like one way of putting our finger on the entire spiritual ecological catastrophe. A crisis of attention. And human attention in particular, though, not exclusively so, because human beings affect what other non-human beings can attend to and how they can attend. We disrupt attention all over the planet, starting with our own. So that's why it's so precious, oh, the precious necessity to continue to reflect deeply on the inherently ethical, metaphysical, and aesthetic aspects of the seemingly simple act of attending. Oh, and I'm nodding right now to my ancestor, Socrates, 
my brother, my teacher, Plato, Buddha, peacemaker, Jesus, Rumi, all the teachers who knew. Zhuangzi, oh, Zhuangzi. He, he wrote it so clear. How we attend and what we attend to expresses our whole philosophy of life. And attention itself arises as an expression of our relative callousness and ignorance or our relative care, compassion, wisdom, and sense of sacredness and wonder. Attention arises as thoroughly ethical in its implications. This is why meditation in the context of a holistic philosophy of life is a most profound ethical and ecological activity. If you care about ecology, even the ecology of your own family or your own mind or the ecologies that make your favorite pizza, and all the more so if you care about the ecologies of mountains, rivers, forests, and the great earth, if you care about any ecology in this world, you will begin to value the arts of awareness and the practices of meditation in the context of a holistic philosophy of life, of course. Human engagement in, through, and as this interwovenness that we are arises on the basis of what we attend to and how we attend. Now, it's holistic. So, it's just a way to try to get at, at this holism, to focus in on something like this. Because, of course, it's, it's essential. In reality, no one thing is the whole thing. Nevertheless, this is so important. The arts of awareness, the primal, cultivation of awareness and attention on the basis of our highest values, our real open heart, that will decisively affect our participation in the ecologies of the world and decisively affect those very ecologies we depend on. And We can't separate it from its ethical dimension. That's why we include that idea of our highest values. We have to see it as ethical. We make the world, not just our own small part of it, but that too. We make our families, we make our relationships, we make our friendships. We make the world in accord with how we attend to it, how we care. Because attend relates to being an attendant. You get on an airplane, there's a flight attendant. They are there to attend. To you, right? Philosophy, philosophia is therapeia, therapy for the soul. Therapeia means attend. Socrates saw himself as an attendant of the sacred here in this world. We are attendants of this world, attendants of the sacred as it manifests in, through, and as our world. Working with that requires love, wisdom philosophy, which is holistic science, Gaia Scienza, not science as we commonly think of it, but philosophy is not some kind of abstract mumbo-jumbo. 
Now, we've included technical terms here, states, flows, inputs, outputs, information, feedback, and we include those because it can help us to think with these more technical terms, to recognize them, to understand what they're talking about. I think in one way it might be the case that we need to remember these things if we want to talk to people who are involved in thinking about ecologies in those ways. From a systems point of view, states are what we look at to make decisions. Flows are the decisions we make, but that's narrow. We need a more holistic philosophical view, including mythopoetic expressions. So maybe let's consider a little bit more poetry, a little bit more image, some story, some narrative. Let's consider a powerful example of the lessons we aim to learn here by considering the work of Aldo Leopold. Now this passage from Leopold resonates with the example of the Kaibab Plateau, and in a way it goes much deeper. You can find this passage in Leopold's book, A Sand County Almanac. And this passage is called Thinking Like a Mountain. I'll let you know when we get to the end. A deep, chesty ball echoes from rimrock to rimrock, rolls down the mountain and fades into the far blackness of the night. It is an outburst of wild, defiant sorrow and of contempt for all the adversities of the world. Every living thing and perhaps many a dead one as well, pays heed to that call. To the deer it is a reminder of the way of all flesh, to the pine a forecast of midnight scuffles and of blood upon the snow, to the coyote a promise of gleanings to come, to the cowman a threat of red ink at the bank, to the hunter, a challenge of fang against bullet. Yet behind these obvious and immediate hopes and fears, there lies a deeper meaning, known only to the mountain itself. Only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. Those unable to decipher the hidden meaning know nevertheless that it is there, for it is felt in all wolf country and distinguishes that country from all other land. It tingles in the spine of all who hear wolves by night or who scan their tracks by day. Even without sight or sound of wolf, it is implicit in a hundred small events, the midnight whinny of a pack-horse, the rattle of rolling rocks, the bound of a fleeing deer, the way shadows lie under the spruces. Only the ineducable Tyro can fail to sense the presence or absence of wolves 
or the fact that mountains have a secret opinion about them. My own conviction on this score dates from the day I saw a wolf die. We were eating lunch on a high rim rock, at the foot of which a turbulent river elbowed its way. We saw what we thought was a doe fording the torrent, her breast awash in white water. When she climbed the bank toward us and shook out her tail, we realized our error. It was a wolf. A half-dozen others, evidently grown pups, sprang from the willows and all joined in a welcoming melee of wagging tails and playful maulings. What was literally a pile of wolves writhed and tumbled in the center of an open flat at the foot of our rimrock. In those days, we had never heard of passing up a chance to kill a wolf. In a second we were pumping lead into the pack, but with more excitement than accuracy. How to aim a steep downhill shot is always confusing. When our rifles were empty, the old wolf was down, and a pup was dragging a leg into an impassable slide rocks. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then, and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean a hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. Since then I have lived to see state after state extirpate its wolves. I have watched the face of many a newly wolfless mountain and seen the south-facing slopes wrinkle with a maze of new deer trails. I have seen every edible bush and seedling browsed, first to an anemic desuetude and then to death. I have seen every edible tree defoliated to the height of a saddle horn. Such a mountain looks as if someone had given God a new pruning shears and forbidden him all other exercise. In the end, the starved bones of the hoped-for deer herd, dead of its own too much, bleach with the bones of the dead sage or molder under the high-line junipers. I now suspect that just as a deer herd lives in mortal fear of its wolves, so does a mountain live in mortal fear of its deer, and perhaps with better cause, 
For while a buck pulled down by wolves can be replaced in two or three years, a range pulled down by too many deer may fail of replacement in as many decades. So also with cows. The cowman who cleans his range of wolves does not realize that he is taking over the wolf's job of trimming the herd to fit the range. He has not learned to think like a mountain. Hence we have dust bowls and rivers washing the future into the sea. We all strive for safety, prosperity, comfort, long life, and dullness. The deer strives with his supple legs, the cowman with trap and poison, the statesman with pen, the most of us with machines, votes, and dollars. But it all comes to the same thing, peace in our time. A measure of success in this is all well enough, and perhaps is a requisite to objective thinking. But too much safety seems to yield only danger in the long run. Perhaps this is behind Thoreau's dictum, in wildness is the salvation of the world. Perhaps this is the hidden meaning in the howl of the wolf, long known among mountains, but seldom perceived among men. That's the passage. I really deeply appreciate that passage so full of wisdom I think we could spend a long time contemplating it it just resonates with so many things Bateson is coming to mind here very clearly because this is Leopold's way of saying the same thing Bateson did the difference between how human beings think and how nature works now we could take the risk of selecting just two lines to hold with us for now only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. And the other line, perhaps this is the hidden meaning in the howl of the wolf, long known among mountains, but seldom perceived among men. What is the hidden meaning of the mountain and the wolf? What is the hidden meaning of our own life? And how can we approach that hidden meaning by listening to the howl of a wolf and learning to think like a mountain? And I just want to say in a little way Leopold doesn't get it to us, you know. He he senses that it's very nuanced. He's only hinting. It's not like he said, this is what it means to think like a mountain. He just points out the mountain doesn't agree with us. I think that's essential. And these are questions of ecological and spiritual thinking. That thinking arises as the ecologies we depend on. And we do not have the perspective of a mountain when it comes to these ecologies. 
Where is ecological thinking? It is the ecologies we depend on. It is mountain thinking. We'll go a little further into the vision of thinking of mountains in our next episode. We want to just kind of go a little further. We get we need several episodes really, but just a little further into this notion of thinking like a mountain. But right now, let's try to get clear about something essential. An entire ecology doesn't fit in our mind. It doesn't fit in what we identify as our mind. So it can never be an object of knowledge, but only an invitation to wisdom, love, and beauty. This is part of the the spiritual quandary of thinking like a mountain. Because we can imagine that we're doing it, but we, our temptation will take us in the wrong direction. That's why we need wisdom. Instead of trying to hold an entire ecology in mind, we enter into that ecology with care, with refined attention, trained attention, with humility, with sincerity. If we begin to relax and release ourselves, into that ecology of mind, we could arrive at life-affirming insights into how dynamic constellations of interwovenness generate the activities or behaviors of that ecology. We could begin to learn how dynamism produces dynamism, how life produces life. That process is called wildness. We need that to produce more life, to further the conditions of life. Sometimes people will use the word structure to refer to the relationship of relative parts or elements in an ecology. And so we could say that ecologies arise on the basis of the relationship between their structural dynamics and the flows into and through those ecologies. The study of ecological dynamics deals with how the structure of an ecology and its information flows or meaning flows determine the behavior of the ecology. We're talking about things like growth, stability, death, rejuvenation, and in human terms, success and failure. Aldo Leopold wrote of the failure of an entire range because we killed the wolves. We did terrible things to these creatures beings. They're just sentient beings. They're beautiful. People to this day, there are people who hate wolves intensely and want to kill them on sight. We introduced mange to these poor beings. We have tormented them. It's really inexcusable. And we don't know what we're doing. There's, there's Jesus right there on the cross. I, I'm, I'm not saying this as a Christian. I'm just a philosopher. But when he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Bam, that's it. That's an ecological insight because it's a spiritual insight. We cannot hold entire ecologies in mind. Therefore, we don't really see them. We know not what we do because we can't see. We don't really see ecologies. And yet we find that error of thinking we do see them. And it emerges in discussions about ecology and systems thinking amongst people who want to do good. 
And very often, too often, let's just say that, too often people want to delude themselves that they see systems at work. I'm a systems thinker. People are now advertising this. You go on LinkedIn, systems thinker. Heck, I might have it on. I mean, you know, it's like you have, it's how you have to talk. Maybe my LinkedIn profile says something about systems thinking. Isn't this, isn't this a mess? And then we want to say, and that's why I have to be critical, you see, especially if I would ever dare to say that, I, you know, I teach eco-literacy with my good friend and colleague, Kathy Fitzgerald. Hi, Kathy. And I teach, I teach it not just in our courses, but I teach it with clients because you can't grow spiritually without this. Spiritual and ecological reality are not two things. So everybody who works with me learns about ecology in one way or another. And so then I have to be critical. You and I together have to be critical to say, hey, we can't run around thinking we're going to do systems thinking in a way that treats systems as objects of study and as something we can manipulate and control. We can't see an ecology because ultimately it's not an object. But we treat them as objects of study, objects we can manipulate and control. The better way, we're trying to say, hey, you know what? What if we relate to every ecology as an invitation to participation, an invitation to wonder, an invitation to skillful relationality? We must find ways of working with ecologies, participating in them, because we do not see systems as as objects. Rather, we live as those systems, as participants either participants of skill and poise, wisdom and compassion, insight and intention, or participants of ruinous clumsiness and ignorance trapped in our own karmic conditioning. Now, we did a series on magic, and we have to go much further. We didn't record the final word on magic. And we have an interview coming out with Phyllis Curat, who's a priestess, We talked a little bit about magic. We even had a moment of magic together. So we need to think more about it. Why? Because magic means accepting this invitation to participate in life. That's the meaning of mystical participation, to participate in the ecologies we depend on. Magic is skillful participation in, through, and as the ecologies we depend on, ecological and spiritual Reality seen in non-duality. The inspiration to participate more skillfully drives some people to use ideas like inputs, outputs, processes, feedback loops, to use those abstractions to help us understand systems. So the intention is good. But remember, that's not enough. The intention has to be skillful. Not just seemingly positive. It has to be skillful. And we need to think carefully, is this the right approach? Can we use other kinds of practices? And maybe, are they better? Are they necessary? How can we most skillfully participate? It's just like saying, how, do, do we want to survive? If so, we got to figure this out. Do we want to survive? Do we want to thrive? Well, we're ecological. We're interwoven in ecologies. That means we've got to participate and it has to be skillful. Do systems models do everything we need them to do in order for us to thrive? 
Now, I would say the most skillful participation, if we want to put a, a name just as a, you know, a way to think about it, not that we're running around labeling everything, but names matter. They help us. They orient. The highest level, the most excellent version of skillfully participating in ecologies, I think we can reasonably call that mystical participation. So it includes a rational sense of magic. It doesn't mean woo-woo. It doesn't mean obscurantism. It means participation that requires initiation and insight, vision, wisdom, ethics, love, compassion, beauty, grace. It demands a holistic philosophical education. Wisdom means skillful interwovenness, and a philosophical education teaches us this skillful interwovenness, which means skillful attunement with and participation in larger ecologies of mind. Thinking like a mountain responding properly to the mysterious call of the wolf, the call of the wild. I would love to go a little further, even just a little, but it seems best to pause. To pause with that sense of wildness. Maybe you can hear it calling in the soul, the wolf still there. She's in the soul. She's indigenous to the soul, a spiritual keystone species. We will pick up on several of the threads of this contemplation in future episodes. Stay tuned especially for a little more reflection on thinking like a mountain. I look forward to sharing that with you and I think you'll enjoy it. If you have questions, comments, or reflections, stories to share, anything related to what we've contemplated here or another episode of It's Coming to Mind right now, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring in some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world, your thinking and the thinking of mountains, forests, and the great earth. Those are not two things. Take good care of them.